Hello and welcome to another Light Reading Podcast. My name is Phil Harvey. I'm an editor here at Light Reading. I'm Kelsey Zeiser. I'm also an editor at Light Reading. Well, how are you doing, Kelsey? Oh, just dandy. How about you, Phil? Doing very well. Um, so our uh, podcast today, uh, it, it's interesting because it's infrastructure related. Infrastructure is usually kind of boring, but this is about installing stuff uh, undersea cabling in the North Sea between uh, the Netherlands and the UK. And uh, we spoke with uh, James Oval, who's the VP of Operations for Europe at Zayo Group. Zayo Group? Oh, I can't. Zayo. It's Zayo. I'll slip and mispronounce it. I'm going to call you during the day and just say, hi, Phil, it's Zayo. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably be helpful. Yeah, I, I don't know what, it's a four-letter word, but for a four-letter name, and for some reason it trips me up all the time. But um, uh, but yeah, we just we just finished the interview with James, and that was in, incredibly interesting, uh, if for no other reason than the patience that somebody like uh, James has to have on his job and, and overseeing a project like that. Um, it was a... What did he say? A, a, it, it's a project. They, that it, yeah, they, they expected the project to be about 15 to 18 months and it ended up being three years because they hit all these um, challenges. There was COVID. Uh, and then he found a lot of interesting things on the seafloor, which created a lot of issues um, yeah. in terms of uh, timing for when they could move forward with the project. So I won't spoil what those are. No, we, won't, it was we won't spoil unexpected. what he found. It wasn't um, fish. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't fish. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, giant monster squids, which is the only other thing <laughs> no I associate crackens. with being in the <laughs> yeah. sea. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but it's, yeah, it's, it's got to be crazy for uh, somebody to be on a project that, yeah, balloons in, in time. You know, you know, it's necessary infrastructure. And yet, you know, you've got to do this uh, as safely and efficiently as possible. And so there's like multiple vectors of pressure sort of coming down on you from a corporate standpoint. Um, but also just the safety of it is really intriguing. So yeah, we'll get into that a little bit during the podcast. Um, I'm also uh, uh, fearing for James's uh, uh, Google history because of uh, <laughs> when you hear the things that were on the seafloor, I imagine he he spent his evenings Googling, you know, the history of all these things and uh, what local authorities must must be thinking of him right now is uh, is, is quite funny. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely on a list somewhere, unfortunately. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, he, he, we, we have no idea uh, that 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 he's Googled anything uh, uh, to 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 make him a, a a subject of interest. We're just uh, we're just playfully speculating because uh, uh, it's one of those weird things in your job that you go uh, that that most people just never uh, come in contact with or have any worry about. And, you know, and he's, 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 he's worrying about these things for multiple years and you'll right. hear why it's, it's kind of interesting. So I, I guess now that we've, uh, uh, over teased it a bit, let's get right on into, uh, uh, to this podcast. Okay. Let's welcome, uh, James Oval VP of operations for Europe at, uh, Zayo group. Uh, James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bill. Uh, good to be here. Great to have you. Uh, Zayo or Zayo? Zayo. Zayo. Uh, 
Okay. I've, I, I think I've changed. I'll have to go back over all our videos and podcasts. I, I'm pretty consistent that I never say it the same way twice. So I, I think <laughs> I'll just keep that up. Um, but we know who we know, we know who they are. Uh, fiber builder, fiber acquirer, uh, giant uh, up and coming infrastructure company. And, uh, and we're having you join because of a, a really interesting blog post and experience you've had in uh, the subsea cabling space. Um, let's start maybe, uh, at the beginning, uh, what's your, what's your background uh, sure. at, uh, at Zayo, uh, or Zayo with, uh, <laughs> subsea cabling. Yeah, sure. So my, so my general background, uh, I, I joined Zayo some 13 years ago, I actually joined AboveNet, uh, and became part of the Zayo family, uh, for the acquisition, uh, of AboveNet. Um, yeah, big service delivery project management background myself. Uh, and for the last seven years, I've been heading up Europe, um, European operations, uh, including service delivery, uh, yeah, for the, for the European estate. Um, yeah. So, um, and, and then we stepped into, uh, in, in 2019, um, we started realizing that our current subsea cable between the UK and Netherlands, Cersei North, um, was, was running out, running out of capacity, running out of, uh, workable life. It was sort of 22, 23 years old at the time. Uh, and we needed to consider overlaying that cable uh, with a newer. Um, and that was kind of my first step into subsea um, cable infrastructure builds. Um, wow, what an experience it has been since then, uh, to be honest. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and it's not just something, uh, yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's part, part of the reason why the podcast is, is because uh, your, your, your blog post was really interesting in terms of uh, pointing out some of these things, which we'll get into, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, that, that was one of going to be one of my first questions is, is how long usually is the life of a subsea cable? Uh, and I guess it, I guess you answered that it depends on the traffic needs, um, you know, for between the two countries and and for the provider itself. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, this is is an economic life, um, sort of 20 to 25 years. Um, I don't think there's ever really a lifespan of fiber cable under the sea. Um, kind of depends on how interrupted it's been in its life cycle. Um, Cersei North in particular has been quite heavily impacted in its sort of 20, 24 year life now, but it's still a workable cable and we're still using it today, still passing traffic over it like we did on, on day one. I think the technology moves on more and, and kind of makes the cable redundant because there's so much better uh, technology of cable in the industry. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I think I think Cersei North will be there for a, a good few more years and be a, a great resilient cable an option for us. Okay, so you haven't fully decommissioned that one. That one's still in use as well. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, and um, so the the Zeus project, as I understand, was the new cable. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, just getting started, uh, like as you began with that project, getting into it, and then where that cable's uh, route is? Um, and then I think we'll get into some of the interesting challenges that you all ran across. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, um, so the the route we picked is, is very similar to our Cersei North cable, which is the shortest um, possible route really um, across the North Sea between the UK and Netherlands. So kind of lower stuff on the UK side where we land, uh, Zan, a town called Zanvoort in the Netherlands, um, which also became a bit of a challenge in, in, the, in the delivery. Uh, it's a beautiful town, uh, seaside town, um, but have, have we known what a, uh, what a challenge Zanvoort as a place would become, we may have picked somewhere else uh, to land the cable. 
but yeah, we, we chose those those locations because it is the shortest. It's a two hundred and four kilometer route under the sea, um, and kind of provides the shortest route between Amsterdam and London. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, the shortest route for uh, you know for for cost reasons and everything out everything else. Um, so th that's part of the planning process. What what else goes into planning exactly where you're going to uh, put down a subsea cable? And then, like Kelsey alluded to. Um, what are some of the challenges in that planning process before you even get to the point of installation? Sure. So first and foremost, you need to get the business on site, right? Because it's a huge investment. Um, and I, I remember very distinctly um, an ex Zoya uh, board member um, warning me that this was a bad move um, and saying that subsea cables are particularly um, unpredictable um, to install. Um, you can put no time frame on them and you can put no budget on them. Um, Probably in hindsight, um, I kind of dismissed that quite flippantly with, yeah, but I deliver great projects all the time and they're always within budget and they're always on time. Um, wow, well, did I, I live to learn. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <clears throat> in the planning phase, I think well, first and foremost, you need to bring in some, some industry experts. Um, it's not what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Terrestrial build is what we do and we, we're experts at it. Subsidy cable isn't. So we did that. We went out to the market, went out and found some, some really good um, some, some advice and we kind of leveraged uh, brilliantly. Um, in hindsight, we probably should listen to a bit more of that advice and you, and you kind of look at cutting cutting costs at times, et cetera, in the, in the planning stages. Um, and they were quite right in, in hindsight that that came back to, to bite us. Um, but yeah, you're looking for what permitting you're gonna need, what how many uh, objects are in the seabed that you have to examine because every object that's there that can't be determined, you then need to examine if that has kind of a, uh, a a connotation of risk to the cable once it's in there or, or to the public, of course, as well. Yeah. And you, in in the, your blog, you mentioned some really interesting objects that I, n I never would have thought of mm. that you came across. Can you <laughs> tell us about what some of those surprise objects were? Yeah. So um, I was always kind of aware that in the, in the first and second world wars, um, as the German fighters would leave the UK shores, um, they may have too much weight. Um, with some explosives left on there to get back to safe ground in Germany. So they would drop these explosives you know, on, on fine land or, or once they got over the sea to get them out of the way. Um, so that was, uh, and we, um, but the, the, the advice we were given was that there's a 5% chance you'll find one of these, these unexploded bombs at the bottom of the sea in, in your path and you'll need to move that out of the way. Um, we found four of them. Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Does that mean you're uh, lucky? I'm I mean, did you buy a lottery ticket after that? Yeah. <laughs> right, no kidding. <laughs> Go to yeah. Vegas right after. Yeah, yeah exactly. Really. Uh, made, it, made it an extremely um, interesting project and, and learned so much about the war and the history, which is which was kind of interesting, but, yeah, not good from a, from a planning perspective to kind of find these guys at the bottom of the sea, um, one, of which, one of which was actually the equal size to the record bomb that's ever been found uh, since. Wow. So it was kind of a, 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 it was a big guy. Um, on the, and unfortunately for us, three of them are found on the UK side and the UK or the British Navy have slightly different rules to the, to the Dutch Navy. Um, if they'd been on the Dutch side, um, that'd have been much easier to deal with them. And the one we found on the Dutch side was right at the end, um, literally the last two days of our exploratory survey along the seabed, we kind of thought we were through the worst, um, and, and everything had been taken care of. We'd spent like 12 months finding these bombs and having them taken care of, etc. And then we found one more, and I must admit, I was pretty much at my wit's end at that point. Um, and uh, I was like, what more, could, what more could happen here? The Dutch Navy 
they were fantastic. Out 20, within 24 hours, went out and uh, exploded the um, uh, the barn, took care of it for safety reasons. Um, we've actually on our on our website, you can actually find that the footage of that explosion. It obviously comes out to see. It's quite it's quite good to see. Um, but on the British side, unfortunately, the responsibility was left to us um, to take care of it, uh, and we had to bring in specialist teams um, to move each of the unexploded bombs out of our path, uh, basically, uh, take care of them, which on average kind of caused sort of a three-month delay, um, wow. huge, huge expense, um, but not, not only have you got the three-month delay of moving it, that you then takes you into a different season because you're then, you've only got a short window to install and then you're right. into it. You've missed the season by that point, so then you're into another year. Um, and as I, was, I alluded to earlier, Zanvor, like I said, beautiful town, um, but it's a pleasure beach. So the Zanvor authorities didn't want us doing anything in the Zanvor area, kind of between May and September. Um, <laughs> and then any time out of that period, you've got a very small window of, uh, of good um, uh, of good weather. Uh, and then to, to kind of make matters a little bit more challenging, uh, we were obviously working through COVID, which was never considered uh, in our in our planning phases. Um, so yeah, it was all a bit of a challenge. Uh, and then again, with Zanvoort as well, um, which was great for them. Uh, but the Formula One Grand Prix uh, was planned, was announced to be held at Zanvoort. Um, it was the first, the first one in the Netherlands for I think about thirty years. Uh, kind of was a consideration, uh, but I think a few. A few Grand Prix got cancelled because of COVID, and they decided, you know what, we'll do one in Zanvoort, give these guys a chance and an opportunity. Uh, but again, it became another major headache for us to have such a big sporting occasion uh, in the town we were bringing our cable to. Wow. Did you sleep at all during this whole thing? Not, not a great deal. <laughs> yeah, like so many things That's to keep you up question. at night. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, uh, Back to the bombs for a second. Let's not gloss over this. <laughs> uh, so you either have to explode them, which it sounds yeah. horrible, but I guess it's it's doable. Um, or you have to move them. If you move them, what's the safe distance to move an unexploded bomb? Yeah, so obviously it depends on the size. The, the big guy I mentioned earlier, um, we we had to move them at least 200 meters away from our apparatus. Obviously, not not closer to anybody else's that's under there, and, and actually, right. <laughs> the seabed's actually Let's a go much. Put them on the Sienna cable. Yeah, surprise! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We brought you something. <laughs> um, yeah, when you, it's, it's 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 quite busy on a seabed, uh, actually, more busy than you realise. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, but we actually decided to move them two hundred and fifty meters away, just to make sure, um, and that okay. was actually the the widest we could possibly move it. And that's the undersea that just, again, I'm kind of dumb about this, but this is the blast radius uh, that undersea that would, that would exactly be, be yeah. catastrophic to the cable. I'm sure it would still affect it somewhat. Yeah, um, exactly. What, when, uh, when that happens also, um, you know, when you're talking about moving, I mean, how deep are you going anyway? That's the other thing. Cause we've, we've sort of all learned, uh, through the, you know, Titanic expedition, uh, you know, I've suddenly been inundated with articles about how dangerous it is to go certain, you know, certain depths into the sea. Uh, I, I have no idea how deep the North Sea is. Yeah, I, actually, the North Sea is not very deep. Um, and that's actually a big challenge for us um, from a maintenance perspective, because that's why fishing vessels are so problematic for us. Um, right. They can fish, they can fish in, the, in the shallow waters. I think the deepest part of the North Sea that we cross is about 80 metres deep. Um, but averagely more like sort of 30 to 40, so not actually that deep at all, really. Um, but yeah, like I say, that's actually um, actually quite problematic for us, and, and one of the reasons we we uh, we wanted to make sure our cable was super resilient uh, and, and buried at depths, kind of kept out of the way of those fishing vessels. 
Well, uh, in your blog post also, just and this is kind of related to the bombs, I'm yeah. sure this is kind of how you found the objects, but I guess just to back up a bit about the process of finding any kind of object that interrupts it, how exactly do you conduct a seabed x-ray and then what other types of things do you end up finding as you're as you're sort of invested, like, like what's kind of a normal thing to find on the seabed um, besides pirate treasure and mermaids? Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> you, you basically do a, um, a, 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 a an X-ray of the seabed, uh, and, and, and anything that can't be explained, i.e., is a rock or um, some coral or something, that you then have to prove what that is. Um, I think it was about 350, 360 objects that we had to to, to identify. Um, which is much higher than the original estimate. Um, but typically what you're finding is, is honestly, shopping trolleys, um, just rubbish, um, honestly. But you, you, you just need to prove that what it is. Um, and then, as we learn to our expense, um, Second World War bombs. Uh, how, how, are they getting, how are the trolleys getting from Tesco all the way to <laughs> the middle of the North Sea? Exactly. <laughs> I just, I, I just guess the guy just get mad, and instead of putting it in the parking bin thing, he just like chucks it a hundred miles. Exactly. <laughs> it is crazy because some of these things are, are ending up a hundred kilometers offshore. Uh, wow! So, but yeah, you, you are finding that, so presumably just in in, in currents, etc. But those you almost you're almost relieved to see those because you're like, well, at least I know what that is. That's, that's <laughs> exactly. Seen one of those before. <laughs> how 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 much does it? I mean, just back to the whole like the the what I don't think people can appreciate the patience needed to, uh, to do this. How long does it set you back every time you find a new object that you, you can't immediately identify, um, you know, as, as like, Oh, we know what this is. This is harmless. We can work around it. Um, if there's something that just has a, you know, a characteristic to it, you're like, I, I can't, I can't tell what that is. Does that stop everything down for yeah. a week? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, not each object. So kind of the, the process is that you, you examine the seabed first, you, and then you go and identify all the objects before you even attempt to do the, the installation. The actual installation from beach to beach, I think there's no more than like six weeks, honestly, okay. um, of a three-year project. The whole process is in the planning uh, and, and identifying these objects and then what obviously you can't work around has to be removed getting those removed, et cetera. That's the, basically seabed preparation uh, for, the, for the installation. And, and we had a kind of <clears throat> idea that it would be a 15 to 18 month project. And as, as we discussed, it's over three years in the end. Uh, and like I said, it's then the case of you find the objects and the, the, the delay takes you into a secondary season uh, when you can do it. So it's a, a three month delay becomes a 12 month delay. Wow. Um, so, and it then, is, yeah, um, so it is all in the timing there. Go ahead, Kelsey. Yeah. When, once you've um, installed the cable, how do you um, monitor it? And, you know, you mentioned that fishing, fishing vessels can cause problems when they're trawling um, the, the seabed and, um, you know, uh, I guess um, we we had another podcast about uh, how a volcano impacted a subsea cable, and I imagine that it's not a problem for this one, but maybe there's other no. things in addition to to fishing vessels. Uh, yeah, a lot less, uh, a lot, <laughs> lot, lot less exotic than volcanoes. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but we have uh, our big challenges. Um, so, it's, um, and one thing we were really lucky with, actually, with Zeus, is we knew what was needed to maintain a cable in the North Sea. Um, Cersei North, on average, was being cut once a year uh, in its, for its life. And 90% and wow. of those cuts were caused by fishing vessels. Um, and unfortunately, most of the water there 
are illegal fishing areas, um, which you'd think would be good. But actually, it's, it's to our detriment because the fishing vessels go out, they pick up our cable. Because they're illegally fishing, rather than just reporting it, which we could come out, release their nets, I don't know, 20, 30 grand to charge, they cut the cable instead. You've got, then got like a, a massive bill to go and get it repaired, plus all the, all the, um, uh, the, the disturbance for our customers, etc. Um, so we knew what was needed. And frankly, when we, when we came into the initiation of Zeus, we, we heard you need, we need a sustainable, reliable network across this piece of water. Um, so we examined, we found out what was causing our problems. You get the North Sea is actually quite susceptible to, to what we call sand waves, which is where the sand on the seabed moves up and down in depth typically kind of up to two metres. It can can be more uh, in places. Um, so we basically came to the conclusion very, very quickly, Zeus needs to be buried at over two metres. So that whenever they're, whenever they're trawling the seabed, our cable remains buried. Um, and we're, we, we, know, we know we achieved over two metres across the whole of the, the piece. Obviously, there's areas where it becomes rocky and you, you don't, but then what we do is we, we, we scar the rock and, and bury the, the cable in the rock. So that's obviously not affected by sand waves. Um, so we achieved that, and, and in areas we knew sand waves were particularly bad, we achieved up to three meters as well. Um, so, I'm one thing with Zeus I'm very, very proud of is I think it's probably the most secure and reliable cable in the North Sea. Um, potentially, out of the four, 500 subsea cables in the world, I actually think it's probably the most resilient in it globally um, and, until new technology comes along and, and can, can enhance on that burial depth, etc. Um, but yeah. That's the main thing for us. Zeus is out of the way of the fishing vessels. Um, and then just to, to kind of double rubber stamp on that, we had one one instance where an anchor just landed on top of Zeus, uh, uh, sorry, of Circe North, um, and that caused the damage. So we went with double armoured cable. Um, and we we know now that the um, the, the, the strike the strike damage of, a, of an anchor landing on Zeus kind of would bounce off uh, rather than cause any damage. Uh, but back to your original question, Kelsey, how do we monitor the cable? Um, so we we monitor it 24 by 7 with, with, um, with kind of RFTS, uh, which is kind of a remote fiber testing. Um, and that's just monitoring for de degradation, et cetera. Another risk you have on cables shouldn't happen to Zeus because obviously Zeus shouldn't be able to move being under the sea, um, under the sand, sorry. Um, but we, we, we monitor it for degradation. In case that cable's drifting up against a rock or something, we'll see that that starts to degrade. Uh, in performance, and then we can act upon that and, and go out and take care of that. Um, but we're also working with some partners um, on, on smart cables uh, technology, where they use vibrations and things like that. Uh, and that's so far proving to be kind of looks like it could be really useful for us as well as them. Um, what we're what we're monitoring there is vibrations of the sea, and then we can from a from a, a desk in London, we can tell how much Zeus is buried. How, and, and how deep it's buried uh, using the vibrations, etc. If anything's disturbing it at all, and obviously at the moment anything did pick it up, we'd be immediately know about that. Uh, and we can we can monitor vessel movement, so we can then pretty quickly pick up the vessel uh, it's there, reach out to them and say, "Guys, I think you picked up our cable. Please drop it." <laughs> um, oh, wow. So <clears throat> that's really really useful technology that's coming. I think that that monitoring, uh, like I say, uh, still in still in kind of initiation with that, but um, really useful and. and it's interesting stuff what they use that for as well, right, for monitoring um, sea, like sea activity and uh, marine activity, et cetera, as, as well as um, the kind of um, legal fishing. So, Yeah. What's the, um, uh, and so now that the cable is in service, or I assume it's in service, yeah. um, what, 
what, what's the main sort of day-to-day uh, -day application for the cable and how much data is actually, uh, you know, moving uh, across the North Sea? Yeah, so we've, um, so obviously not the, with the, the capacity on the cable hasn't been fully utilized at all yet. Um, customers are, are still trying to hear about Zeus and, and, and put in, uh, putting it into service. Um, the, the, we had 25, the cable is 25% um, made up of, of ultra low loss uh, cable. Um, so that is capable of um, 600 gigs across one channel. Um, okay. So, so the, the, the traffic that can come over Zeus over time will be will be immense. But obviously, Zeus is right. put in for capacity to, to suit our capacity needs for the next 20, 25 years. So, uh, wow. obviously, it's in its infancy, but yeah, it's been in place for for twelve months now. Excellent. Yeah. And any uh, any issues since it's been in, uh, uh, turned up? No, I'd look. Um, and to be honest, from from an operations guy to, to come on a podcast and say, I think it's the, it's the safest and the best cable in the industry. Really is yeah. tempting fate, um, yeah. and, and, my, and my team would be like, "Well, what are you saying?" Uh, Plus, mine we insisted on hosting the podcast in lightning-proof studios. Uh, that was uh, yeah. one of our big uh, challenges. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but no, we've had uh, we've had absolutely no uh, no known issues at all. Um, to the point, we actually had a guard vessel in the water that we we would be using to protect Cersei North as much as anything, but also for Zeus. Um, we've actually come to the conclusion that we don't need that anymore. It's redundant. Um, we're, we're, we're so confident that nothing will happen with Zeus uh, and it's in, in good shape. And in, like I say, it's all about the installation and we're so confident. Part of our permitting was that we had to go and re-X-ray um, the, 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 the route that Zeus took um, recently. We're about 90% through that at the moment. Um, and we're finding um, with doing that, that the cable is actually still remains buried over two metres in, in every area. Uh, there's not one area, it's come kind of less less buried than two metres, which is great. Um, and in some areas we're actually finding it's actually getting more and more buried, it's kind of sinking itself, which is which is kind of perfect. That's that's kind of it. <laughs> yes, very <laughs> much. <it> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so any any other, uh, you know, interesting use cases that you uh, foresee um, for you know, customers using um, the cable in the future? Or any any just insight and in, in what you're looking forward to next with the, with Zeus? Um, yeah, I think it's uh, we're we, we out to the industry to to determine demand, etc. Um, we know the demand's there. Um, the hyperscalers um, want to use Zeus, etc. Um, so they will do. They will do. Um, as well as obviously, I, I think uh, Frankfurt, London. Um, obviously, you're connecting to Amsterdam, but you're also then taking the services onto Frankfurt, which is only just a bit further south than Amsterdam. So Frankfurt is becoming more and more of a, a financial hub, uh, etc. So I see a lot, a lot of customer demand between London and Frankfurt. Uh, I think Brexit's forced a lot of the financial markets to move away from London, but they obviously still will have connectivity back to London required, uh, and they're moving to Frankfurt. So I think the connectivity between between there um, and the super resiliency of the cable, etc. Uh, as well as the bandwidth powers it has, the, the type of cable, um, I think we will see a lot of demand. Excellent. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Um, James, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your insights. Uh, you know, uh, we wish you uh, many more uh, restful nights <laughs> as the cable stays in place and nothing happens. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and good luck on on whatever expansion uh, you know uh, happens. Uh, please do keep us posted because we'd. Uh, uh, we love stories about uh, new infrastructure builds here at sure. Light Reading, and so we're, we're eager to hear what, what happens next.
No, absolutely, guys, and we're uh, and we're not stopping. We've got plenty more. We're plenty more lined up there as I have. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for having me. It's uh, great to speak to you. Speak to you. All. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Bye bye.